Cold War. You're listening to the Planning, Environment and Property podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. I'm Richard Harwood, I'm a barrister, a QC at 39 Essex Chambers. In the corner of a contemporary and award-winning housing estate in Cambridge lies one of the city's many historic buildings. It is one of a number of examples of post-World War II architecture around the city, executed in a contemporary style, in this case, brutalism. Unlike the concrete works of the period spread around the colleges, it has no windows. A massive two-storey structure, its function was not housing university students, but more basic, more fundamental. It was about survival. The Cold War brought unique challenges to government and the functioning of civil society. In the Second World War, British cities had come under sustained air and rocket attack. Homes, businesses, civic buildings and infrastructure had been destroyed. Tens of thousands of lives lost. Air raid shelters had been constructed and a clear-up operation would have to be carried out. But streets could be cleared of rubble and life went on as photos, posed or otherwise, of the Blitz show. Civil society and civil authority continued. The Cold War created a far graver threat. Fission nuclear bombs, and subsequently the more powerful hydrogen bombs, raised the prospect of destruction on an unparalleled scale and the danger from radiation which would severely curtail rescue efforts in the days, weeks and months following an attack. The challenge was how then could government continue in the face of such a catastrophe. In the 1950s, therefore, regional control of the recovery operation was to be given to war rooms dotted around the country. In the 1960s, faced with the even greater power of H-bombs, larger regional seats of government were constructed. Some, as at Cambridge, were on the sites of war rooms. So, in a corner of the government office estate in Brooklands Avenue, Cambridge, lay the final redoubt of East Anglia. Ultimately, the Cold War was won by the West. The autumn of 1989 saw one of the defining political events of my lifetime, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the communist governments in Eastern Europe, and a flowering of democracy. The threat of the Third World War was lifted. Civil defence wound down. The bunkers were, in the main, cleared and locked up. In peacetime, the Brooklands Avenue estate was the home of the government office for the east of England. At the start of this century, the government offices were consolidated in the new building, and the rest of the site, including the bunker, sold to countryside properties. Planning permission was obtained for 380 dwellings. When finally built out, the scheme, known as Accordia, won the Reba Sterling Prize 2008. The design, by Field and Clay Bradley Studios, Alison Brooks Architects uh, and Macrina Lavington, was described by the Reba judges as about relationships between private and public external spaces, providing a new model for outside-inside life with interior rooftop spaces, internal courtyards and large semi-public community gardens. But the scheme had a problem. Sat in the southwest corner was a concrete mass of the bunker. 
Countryside's detailed scheme in the reserve matters approval assumed the demolition of the bunker and the construction of 14 dwellings on that part of the site. At that time, the government agency of the historic environment was English Heritage. Subsequently, that role was split between Historic England as regulator and advisor and English Heritage who managed various historic sites and buildings. By the turn of the century, English Heritage's Monuments Protection Programme had looked at the Cold War. In July 2003, the Cold War bunker was made a Grade II listed building for its special architectural and historic interest. This was a month after Reserve Matters approval had been given for the housing estate. Countryside Properties applied to Cambridge City Council for listed building consent to demolish the bunker. Legislation in the form of Section 16 of the Planning, Listed Buildings and Conservation Areas Act 1990 contains a strong presumption that listed buildings will be preserved. Government policy applies strict tests before consent can be granted for the demolition of a listed building. Contained at the time in Planning Policy Guidance Note 15, they required clear and convincing evidence that all reasonable steps have been made to sustain existing uses or find viable new uses, and that these efforts have failed, that the preservation in some form of charitable or community ownership is not possible or suitable, or that redevelopment would produce substantial benefits for the community, which would decisively outweigh the loss resulting from demolition. Before making the application, Countryside had marketed the bunker attracting offers up to £375,000 for storage purposes. They contended, however, that a realistic price would be over half a million pounds. English Heritage were amongst the objectors to the application. The council's officers considered that the bunker could have a viable future and that consent for demolition should be refused. On the 20th of April 2005, however, the council's planning committee rejected their officers' advice and voted to grant listed building consent for the demolition of the bunker. The application was called in by central government. A public inquiry was to be held, presided over by a planning inspector who would write a report to the Secretary of State. A government minister would then decide whether consent should be given for the demolition. In the inquiry, countryside properties and the council would be on the same side. Leading the opposition, would be English Heritage and the 20th Century Society, who are the National Immunity Society concerned with post-1914 architecture. I was instructed to act for English Heritage, who contended that the bunker could be retained for storage. Consequently, on a chilly January morning, I was in Cambridge, standing on a muddy building site with the rest of the English Heritage team and the 20th Century Society's people. We were issued with steel-toed boots and torches. Guiding us round was our star witness, Wayne Cocroft, who is English Heritage Officer who'd led the Cold War listing programme. He's the author, with Roger J.C. Thomas, of the masterful book on defence installations of this period, Cold War, Building for Nuclear Confrontation. The book provides the most detailed description of the Cambridge bunker and is still in print if you want to follow up on this podcast. We entered the bunker through the war room. 
Since the 1930s, 12 regions have been established for national emergencies, each headed by a regional commissioner. The regional commissioner and his staff were the civil administration of a region should central government control be lost. Their other main tasks being the coordination of air raid precautions and civil defence activities. In the 1930s, they operated from existing buildings. Following the blockade of Berlin and the demolition of the first Soviet atomic bomb in August 1949, protected accommodation was designed for regional commissioners, each with some 50 staff. Constructed in 1953, the Cambridge War Room was a two-storey concrete building with walls four foot thick and a five foot thick roof. This could protect against a direct hit from a 500 pound conventional bomb or from radiation from atomic bombs. Walking into it through narrow corridors over 50 years later, it was notably dry. The 25 rooms in the war room centered around a double height map room used to plot attacks and damage like those used in the Battle of Britain. Standing there, our torches picked out the control cabins on the first floor, which had overlooked the map table. Almost before the concrete on the war room had set, the detonation of the Soviet Union's first hydrogen bomb in August 1953 rendered it obsolete. Atomic bombs, as used at the end of the Second World War in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, split atoms of large and stable radioactive elements, either uranium or plutonium, the energy these fission bombs release, whilst devastating, is much less than a hydrogen bomb. Hydrogen bombs use atomic bombs to fuse together hydrogen isotopes, releasing even more power. All nuclear bombs produce blast, a devastating shockwave, heat, nuclear radiation and electromagnetic pulse. So fission bombs are bad enough. The UK government estimate was that if evacuation plans worked, there would still be 1.4 million dead from attacks with bombs of the type used at Nagasaki. In contrast, a single hydrogen bomb dropped on London would probably kill 4 million people, all dwellings within two miles of the detonation would catch fire, and roofs would be torn off several miles away. At that time, bombs would be launched or dropped by aircraft but there was no confidence that air defences would stop enough. The Defence White Paper in 1957 said, It must frankly be recognised that there is at present no means of providing adequate protection for the people of this country against the consequences of an attack by nuclear weapons. After any attack, the recovery process would be longer and more difficult, and central government control would take time to re-establish. The decision was taken to prepare regional seats of government replacing the war rooms. Some were in established tunnels and others were to be converted from army barracks as the crisis approached. Two were to be new build. One of these was the East Anglian RSG as a substantial enlargement of the Cambridge War Room bunker built onto its side. Having examined the first floor of the war room, we entered the regional seat of government. The ceilings were conventional office height, the walls plain. The doors were labelled HM Treasury, Board of Trade, Ministry of Pensions, National Insurance, Male and Female Dormitories. 
Whilst the contents had been pretty much all cleared out, our torches sometimes caught lists of furniture on the backs of doors. The regional seats of government were large. The Cambridge complex had a floor space of 3,300 square metres, so similar to an out-of-town suitor store. 400 staff would serve the regional commissioner, who would be a cabinet minister. There were small offices for the armed forces and some military assistance with communication, but most of those in the bunker would be civilians. Now, there was no secret about the regional seats of government. The then Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, confirmed their existence in the House of Commons. Recognising the bunker could not survive the shockwave of a nearby nuclear strike, the walls of regional seats of government were thinner than for the war room and were designed to block radiation. Huge ventilation and filtration machinery, some still in situ at the time of our visit, was to keep out fallout. The ministers were keen to emphasise that these were not military installations, no more than 10% of their occupants being from the armed forces. The Home Office Minister Montague Woodhouse told Parliament that their primary purpose was enabling succour and relief to be brought to the public after an attack to be carried out to the best advantage and to marshal services and supplies essential for survival. The grimness of survival was emphasised when we visited the other purpose-built regional seat of government as part of our preparations for the inquiry. This was in Beeston, Nottingham, a concrete slab of a building which completely enclosed the earlier war room. As was an asbestos risk, we were kitted out in suits and masks. It might just have been the masks, but searching the Nottingham RSG by torchlight felt bleaker, yet more dramatic. The regional seats of government ticked on through the Cold War. The Cambridge bunker features in the 1981 poem On the Beach at Cambridge by Adrian Mitchell, narrated by an assistant to the regional commissioner, Block E, Brooklands Avenue, who leaves the RSG to record what remains. I think that in one moment, all the books in Cambridge leapt off their shelves, spread their wings and became white flames and then black ash, and I'm standing on the beach at Cambridge. Of course, none of that happened. The communist governments in Eastern Europe fell, almost entirely peaceably, followed by the Communist Party's control of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union itself broke up. There was a peace dividend. Missiles and jet fighters were cut up for scrap, and the regional seats of government were cleared out and closed down. And so the Cambridge bunker became a corner of a housing site. Whilst the inquiry date approached and proofs of evidence were written, some reconsideration was underway. The application for consent for demolition was withdrawn. The public inquiry never happened, and I never got to deliver the speech that I was very much looking forward to saying. A speech that would have been one of the more interesting ones of my career. What ultimately is the interest in these brutalist monuments to the control to the Cold War? In the history of defensive structures littering these aisles, which start with Iron Age forts, pass through Hadrian's Wall and the Roman Saxon forts, Norman castles, Civil War sconces, Mortello towers, Palmerston thorps, 
Second World War air raid shelters and pillboxes to the cruise missile shelter complex at Greenham Common. The regional seats of government are unique. They are not about keeping invaders out. They are not about fighting battles. No weapons would have been launched from them, no instructions sent out to warriors in the field. Nor are they about the immediate safety of the occupants, shelter from the bombing to emerge into the familiar world in the morning. They are instead about survival, about the survival of civilization, or about the survival of government, if you wish to view it more narrowly. They represent a belief, a desire, that mankind would survive the greatest catastrophe that mankind could ever inflict on itself, that civilization would resume, that there would be a world to rescue and rebuild, that there would still be a role for the Ministry of Pensions. The builders of the bunkers looked into Armageddon and decided that there was something worth surviving for, the worst that could happen was still not the end. The Cambridge Bunker is ultimately an expression of hope that from disaster there would be recovery, revival. Ultimately, there was a revival at Cambridge. In 2019, planning permission and listed building consent was granted for the conservation of the bunker to a material store archive for Cambridge University. AMA Chartered Architects Scheme is being completed in 2020. Over three kilometres of bespoke shelving will hold the finds of the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology and the Centre for Material Culture in two floors of environmentally controlled storage. The Cambridge Bunker will survive. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.